Hello and welcome to this week's Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? I'm all right, thank you, John. Excellent. Just you and me today. Yeah. After the excitement of last week. Indeed. Good. It was good. No, I, I, I really enjoyed really, it. Really, no, really nice to see uh, to see Peter get Peter Higgins on the podcast, and there was lots of uh, lots of warm response to that on Twitter, which is great. Yeah, going to be one of subdued today, I think. Are we feeling it? Are we feeling it, Phil? I think we're all right. We're all right. All right. Yeah. What are we going to talk about? I don't want to talk about Cardo. Yeah, I didn't talk about Cardo. I think my column this week is about sort of warning signs, that kind of thing, and how. You don't need to be wise with hindsight. You can actually see red flags, mind your eye signs are often there long in advance of a share price blow up. Yeah, and we're going to talk about World as well, which might actually fall into that category. Um, yeah. let, let's start with your column, because I, actually before I'd read your column, uh, I started to write on the same subject because we've had a number of uh, accounting problems uh, at several companies this week. We had... Ted Baker yeah. issued some horrible uh, guidance to the market about an accounting issue. MSC Saatchi, Eddie Stobart, there's something odd going on there. Um, but let's talk about Ted, because this is the one that you spotted, and actually you and Algie spotted at the same time in the issue of the 26th of July. Uh, and it was a stock issue that you had both spotted by interrogating the, uh, the report and accounts. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's fair to say that this stock issue has been building for years at Ted Baker. If you haven't looked at it, you won't have seen it. The rate in the rate of uh, stock build in this company is you know, very alarming. And just to explain what I'm going on about is that you know one of the one of the key sort of warning signs, uh, particularly for retailers but also manufacturers, is you look at the 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 ratio of stock levels to revenue or sales and generally a growing business needs more stock for various reasons in terms of having enough to sell so they don't go short and that kind of thing building up so a rising level of stock as the as the business grows is not not generally a concern it's when the stock levels grow faster than the sales levels that we can we can begin to have problems. So we're not looking at the absolute level of stock. We're looking at that as a ratio yeah. uh, to sales. So yeah, so you're relating it to the activity levels of, of the business. And what you don't really want to see is the stock built, stocks growing faster than sales. And that's for, for a number of reasons. The main reason is that Generally, and it also depends what kind of stock, you know, stocks can take on different things. They can take on things like raw materials, work in progress and, and finished goods, which is the main thing that you ought to be worried about. And obviously, if you have a growing pile of goods that you can't sell, eventually you have to turn them into cash because they lose value. Mm-hmm. And that loss of value it gets reflected in your profits. It can, it can blow a hole in your profits. And presumably with a retailer, where we're talking about fashion, yeah, uh, fashion things can go out of fashion very quickly, so it matters more in a retailer. If you see this in a retailer, turning that into cash might be harder because stuff has just simply become stuff that people don't want to buy anymore. Yes, absolutely. So that for a retailer is, you, you know, retail analysts, investors, particularly at this time of year, for cost so many retailers in our... Uh, make a lot of their money at Christmas. One of the key things that 
that people focus on after the Christmas sales is how much stock have they got left. Mm. Because if they've got a lot of unsold stock, they worry about the hits to profits. You know, they might have to sell these things at a loss just to turn them into cash. And this is the whole thing. You know, when you invest in stock, you know, that is cash flowing out of the business. Now, if all things are going well, you sell that sell that stock for more than it costs you and you make a profit. But if you can't sell it, danger is that you sell it for a loss and potentially a big loss or even write it off completely because mm. you can't sell it. And, you know, Ted Baker has always had pretty high levels of stock. It's been around sort of 25% of sales even sort of eight, ten years ago. And in the last three or four years, that ratio has got bigger and bigger, and it's, I think it was up to over 35% of sales. Yeah, and actually, you look at that graph, I mean, it's, it's been steadily rising throughout the whole sort of 10, 12-year period. Yeah. But it, but it, it seems to sort of I think be, even, be accelerating. Obviously, you've got to take into account the type of business. You know, sometimes, you, you know, they, they had a big wholesaling business, and sometimes that can affect... You know, levels of stock that you might hold. And the other thing to bear in mind as well is that stock is an end of period figure. So end of three months, half year, or a year, generally a year. So it's a snapshot of what the stock levels were at that point in time. And you're comparing it with the revenues over a year. But then we're looking we're looking back, you know, you've looked at it this week and both you and Algie looked at it on the 26th of July. It's a trend. Yeah. So, so yeah, it might be a snapshot, but it's a snapshot that Absolute, represents yeah. a trend. Yeah. Like anything, you need to look at you need to look at the trend rather than one year in isolation mm. to see if there is a a pattern developing here. Is this because it's tried to change the business though? I mean, this was I mean, I, I remember I tipped this. When did I tip this? I remember two thousand and nine. It was a tip of the year. It was absolutely brilliant actually uh, for a while, very long while. As they are <laughs> years, years yeah. and years. Um, Things have obviously gone very bad there, uh, and that was obviously, you know, the, the the thing that obviously hit the share price very hard last year was the uh, issue with the chief executive, which we won't talk about in any no, detail no, now. No. Um, has but they have tried to change the business. Have they? Have they essentially just got overambitious? Thought they were more than they were. It was a good UK <laughs> retailer. Is it trying to be something else? Yeah, that's a fair question to ask. Yeah, it could well be the case that they have tried to expand too quickly in the wrong areas and it's not worked and you're well it hasn't worked we can see that through through the trading and you're left with left with too much stock but I mean, it's quite interesting that actually uh obviously a big part of the business is, is wholesale mm. so not not their own shops but stuff they're selling into department stores and department stores have had a horror of a year yeah uh i mean that must have that must have hurt them really badly oh very much so yeah so I mean Debenhams uh, has Fraser. I mean it's 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 a horror show. Everything has gone wrong at the same time. Yeah. Um. What what else do you look at in this uh, in your your column this week? I mean you look at Kia, which is another one we we've had on a yeah. For I mean a very long I mean time. Kia. I mean if we if we look at Kia, this this is the one you look at and think has no one has no one learned the lessons from Carillion <laughs> and Interserve? You know, Kia shares. You know, even at the start of this year were north of £10. They drifted down from sort of £14 a few years before, but still, you know, £10. You, you look at... This is, why, this is why studying the past is so important and looking at lots of different companies. And there were so many warning signs with this, particularly, you know, I mentioned this in, this in my magazine column this week, 
Now you've got an inherently low profit margin business. Because it's essentially a construction outsourcer. Yeah. I mean, the thing about this kind of thing is that it's sold to investors as, you know, highly visible business, contracted revenues and that kind of thing. But as we've learned is that contracts are only good if you've signed them at the right price and mm. you manage them well. But you have an inherently low profit margin business here. And unless you are someone like an Amazon or a Costco or a JD Weatherspoon, for example, that uses low margins as a source of customer value and sells more and generates profit by selling more and, rather than higher prices. And they're genuinely quite predictable businesses. We know how many people yeah. are likely to go into a pub in any given year. Yeah, then that can work well. In other businesses, a low profit margin can can be a very big warning sign because it doesn't take much of a deterioration in trading for a low profit margin to become a no profit margin or even a zero a negative profit margin. And then you start adding all you know layers of complexity onto this. So you start buying companies, big acquisitions followed by lots of bolt-on acquisitions, and you do it with debt, and you load the business up with debt. The other thing as well, which I think is what did for Carillion and Interserve as well, is that, and this is the big lesson that really investors should take away from these type of businesses, is that no one really knows what's happening with the cash flow. I mean, you've seen it, seen it with you know Galliford Try as well. And the cash flows of these contracts can be, work, can be moving all over the place. What, why is that? Because you've got payments to suppliers and then you get payments for work done. So there's money moving around. You you have to lay out for stuff and then then you get paid. Are they offering, you know, more generous payment terms perhaps to secure these contracts, which uh, obviously affects the cash flow? You could be. You could be. You know, you could be financing somebody else's business. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you look at the cash balances of these businesses and again, Again, with a balance sheet, you can have a high cash balance, but it can be no way reflected of what the cash balance is throughout the year. And we've seen this with Carillion and Galliford Try, where the average net debt figures are a lot higher than the ones that they put on their balance sheet at the year end, where they dress it up and make it look as nice as possible. Mm. And the cash flow here was a real giveaway. I mean, if you look at the the operating cash flow, so what you want to see is you want to see a business that says it's making a profit, you want to see that back by cash. And with Kia, you could look over the last five years, so nothing, not even the last 12 months. Sometimes this was a business that, that produced no trading or operating cash flow, and yet it was saying it was making lots of profit. And often the operating cash flow was a lot less than the operating profit. It's, it's, and, it's so weird. I, mean, I was chatting to Algie about this. Yeah. You know, it, we, so we've had three of these this week, but, but it feels like it's becoming more, more, a more regular occurrence that we're seeing these accounting blow-ups. And, and you know, his view was that we're late in the cycle. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, companies are pushing harder to meet expectations and, and resorting to kind of this accounting trickery or you know, financial engineering or whatever it might be uh, to, to meet their numbers. Yeah, I think what, what's, what could well be going on here is a classic case of weak trading conditions finding mm. these companies out. You know, when things are going well, quite often they they can be 
ignored or you get the strength of one side of the business that masks weakness elsewhere. Or they might acquire to cover stuff up. Yeah. Everyone's happy with the acquisition because no one's really thinking that it's, it's, it's trying to disguise a problem. Yeah, so you, you know, obviously you know, things like acquisitions and you get the cost savings from the acquisitions that keep the profits ticking up. And then when the cost savings run out, you're there, you're standing there and you're totally exposed. And this this is this is the problem that we all have as outside investors. We don't have we don't have the same level of knowledge and it's it can be very hard to spot these things, but with a little bit of work, you can pick up signs of things going wrong. Theoretically we have the same amount of knowledge as as any investor, whether that be an institutional investor or, or anyone else, because because disclosure rules say we should. Uh, and we do have the annual report. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm. I'm just comparing us with insiders. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, the insiders who know the management accounts and they know the business flows. Obviously, we wouldn't know that, and that's what makes it difficult. But we, but we do, as I say, have the annual report, and yeah. And actually, this I think is a much underrated document. Yeah, we've said it time and time and time and time again. Yeah. Uh, not enough people are using it properly. No, and I, and this is this is all comes this all comes down to risk. This is this is about the management of risk. Investors managing their risk by studying the business and the numbers that come from that business. Some people might think it's a bit of a dry exercise and a bit boring and something that they don't really want to do. But you ignore this kind of work at your peril. And you know, as we've said many times, the annual report freely available to everybody. The most valuable documents about a business that any investor can get their hands on, and for far too many people, private and professional investors, in my experience, just ignore it. And I heard some stats recently, and I can't remember where or exactly what they were, but but the stat essentially said hardly anybody is downloading annual reports these days. No, I mean you know you know even analysts you know who are paid a lot of money are, are not reading this reading these documents. They rely an unbelievable amount on presentations, chatting with management and that kind of thing. And it's ama- it's amazing. It's not just it's not just bad stuff. You can pick up good stuff as well. Yeah, absolutely. Green flags. Yeah, you can you, can, you know, you can pick up pick up companies that are understating their profits. Mm. And or where there's some hidden asset value and that kind of thing. Which, which is actually the Simon Thompson yeah. exercise, the bargain shares exercise. He's he's looking for that stuff that that's just not being valued properly by the market, and, or even the companies behind. Yeah, and I think the reason why people don't do this is because it's actually hard work. I wouldn't say it was difficult, although you know I speak from the experience of having done it for over twenty years. But the more you do of this, um, you know some. You know, there's plenty of literature out there to try and understand these kinds of things. Some guy in this room wrote some Yeah, there's books, <laughs> that kind of thing. And just just reading them, just 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 reading the annual reports. And the more you read and the more different companies that you look at, you know, you'll pick up little things and think, ah, oh, right, I can take that. And I, I've seen that before and it meant that. And you see it again, you think, ah, oh, right, I know what that means this time. Mm. And it and it's immensely valuable. I, th- I think you get a lot at the tone that things are written in as well, whether that be a, you know, an annual report or the statements that they put out through the RNS. You know, the tone tells you quite a lot as well. You know, there, there is an art to reading stuff. Oh, it's it? practice. It, it needs a lot, a lot of practice. But yeah. but it's incredibly valuable and, and worthwhile. 
Of course, the other big document that, that people perhaps don't pay much attention to is the prospectus, the IPO prospectus. And obviously your third example here being Aston Martin Lagonda. You looked at that prospectus before this came to market. I, I actually wrote a piece in the magazine before it actually came mm. came to the market. Nailed it, Phil. Nailed it. And it was full of full of red flags. But no, you're right, absolutely right to say that if you are beginning to look at any company, and you know, if if it's um even if it's been listed for a few years, if you do a bit of digging on the internet or company's house or places like that, or even just you know ring the company up or send the company an email, you can get hold of prospectuses. And these these are not just for listing. You know, if a company has a rights issue, yep. you know, you will get... This is why companies don't want to do rights issues a lot, <laughs> because, because they have to issue a prospectus. And... You know, or if a company in, or a similar company in the same sector might not be the company you're looking at, but say if a competitor floats or does a rights issue, get hold of the prospectus because there's huge amounts of uh, information about the business in there, both good and bad, because they it's a legal document and they have to spell out the opportunities and and the risks. Mm-hmm. And they are immensely, immensely valuable. Of course, the other the other document that uh, all investors should read uh, not not necessarily if they're investing in companies, but if they're investing in funds, is the fund the fund documentation that's out there. Yeah, uh, which uh, Tim Steer refers to in his book uh, "The Signs Were There," which we both reference in our pieces uh, this week. Yeah, I can't recommend that book highly enough. It's great, isn't it? It's really yeah, it's, good. It's pro- probably for me one of the. It's the probably the best one of the best books, if not the best practical book for investors that's been written for the last twenty, thirty years. I mean, it sort of sounds like it sort of sounds like it's very ne- you know it's a negative approach, like you know all you know all these companies have done bad things, and this, this is not the exciting like oh I'm going to grow your wealth by X amount. Well, and and I I kind of find this quite interesting though. I think you you have to avoid being too cynical. Um, yes, you you have to have an optimistic bias to your way on life, I think, if you want to be a successful investor. But there is this idea... Unless that, you're a hedge fund shorting stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But there is this idea that actually the first, the first way to start making money is not to lose it, so... Yeah, and it, and it is, because, you know, the old, the old simple bits of maths, you know, if a share falls 50%, it has to double to get back to where you were. And trying to recover from that kind of thing is incredibly hard. And usually... It doesn't happen. Yeah, it's. it's I, th- I think this uh, red flag stuff is, is invaluable, which is why we've written on it so much. I mean, obviously this week, given what's been going on, but we wrote Algae interviewed Tim Steer uh, earlier in the year. We uh, Philip Ryder wrote a big piece on danger signs. I mean, we've we've been, we've been all over this. Yeah, it's about and, it's about protecting your your hard earned savings. Absolutely, as well as you know, ho- hopefully picking the right shares to make them grow. Should we uh, should we talk about a current and? Uh, no red flags necessarily just yet. Well, he's putting a face over there. Okay, nothing's gone wrong. Nothing is falling off a cliff just yet. But but we might be seeing some signs here that, that, that there's trouble. Cine World. Yeah, I mean this is this is a company, and you know if you go back and look at companies that get un, get into trouble, by far I think the most common theme is big acquisitions funded with debt or partly funded with debt. And Cineworld a couple of years ago essentially has bet bet the company on 
the American cinema market by buying a business called called Regal and paid a very high price for it and loaded up with a lot of debt. I think it part, part financed it with asking shareholders for some money as well. And it needs this to pay off. You know, we, we, we see a lot of change going on in entertainment market. And I think, you know, we had this discussion before we just before we came on air. You know, you could have been bears of cinema chains ten years ago. You can always be you can always be bears of cinema chains. People watch telly. Yeah. People do other things. But I think and it's quite expensive. It, it is I mean it's expensive. you know, you take a family of four to the cinema and it's not it's not really that cheap. No, it's not. And you know, if you look at the way that that streaming streaming is just getting better all the time now. Well, I noticed you commenting on the uh, the new Amazon football offering. This yeah, which I thought was actually pretty good. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that a number of times actually. I, I I was really impressed with it. You know, the picture quality, the coverage. They didn't try. They didn't try and be too clever with it. Uh, you know, we'll see, there's another round of matches tonight. Obviously, Arsenal playing tonight. So we'll see what happens there. Yeah, I mean. They, they, they... We'll come back to this another time. This doesn't sound like good news for BT particularly, but there you go. Uh, I don't know. It depends because you know you need the infrastructure for streaming. You know you've got to. You need the you need the bandwidth. Amazon have got it. Amazon have got the infrastructure. It's what they do. They are no, they haven't. They haven't got the. They they, haven't. No, Amazon don't own don't own the bandwidth. Right. So, okay. So, okay. The pipes. To the so, so, okay. So, fine, so, fine. so you need the pipes. So you know. What's Don't worry, the, Jamie Corbyn's going to be giving what, it all, all to us for free. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's hope not. <laughs> but we uh, we have a situation where, you know, things like f- both BT and Amazon are offering football, streaming football in 4K or ultra high definition. And you need about 20 megabits per second to stream that mm. and no one else to be on your internet at the same time. So you need this bandwidth to distribute the media the entertainment particularly live stuff if you're going yes, if you're going to yes. go into sport open reach though is essentially an independent company yeah i mean it could be it, it, it was it was potentially bullish for bt if, okay, if, BT, if, if bt could get a financial settlement with the regulator which is what it's arguing about at the moment to get a decent return on fiber optic Investment fiber optic to the home, proper fiber optic, proper not not the not no. the fiber optic to the cabinet and not, a bit of copper thereafter. That's correct. Yeah, they've tried to do it on the cheap. And to be fair to BT, they actually squeeze quite a lot of stuff out of the copper mm. copper network. But it's gone. I think it's gone as far as it can go now. Indeed. Anyway, let's, but, let's but, come back to let's come back to BT another time. Yeah, that, yeah. Because we, we, we we were talking about Cineworld. Yeah. So and I think this BT. Story, the Amazon story, it's quite big actually, and I think we should come back to that. It is a growing theme. Now, whether it whether it stops people going to the cinema and people will get their big television sets and their sound systems and ultimately though, I think the point I want to make about Cineworld is that it's isn't really in control of its own destiny. It is dependent on filmmakers making enough good films that people can't wait to watch. And, you know, and, and cinema chains have had a really good decade. And, you know, I think that, that good decade has been underpinned by Disney, or what what's now part of Disney, Marvel. I mean, it has been extraordinary what that's done for cinema attendance. Yeah. Extraordinary. And the thing is, is that 
and no, you know, no one ultimately knows this, but if the distribution capability is there through full fiber internet, what you know, what's to stop the filmmakers just cutting out, cutting out the middlemen in the cinemas? Well, with Disney, uh, Disney Plus has launched in in America. Yeah, so um, selling direct to the to the consumer, mm. and the consumer won't go to the cinema and watches it in their in their living room. Yeah, yeah. Now we're probably still away from that, um, but that is obviously the threat, and obviously one of the weaknesses that come out with Cineworld this week. It's saying, look, there hasn't been enough good films. There hasn't been enough good films this year, and you know, the revenues are down, you know, more than 10%, and they're down by about 13% in America, which is where they... And the only thing that's bailing them out is they're getting the cost savings from this acquisition. But they, and, but they, but they can't continue indefinitely. Exactly. They can't continue indefinitely. It's interesting now, the yield, the dividend yield on Cinewell, which has, is now 6%. Ooh, getting into that danger zone. Yeah, and it's, it's either a buying opportunity or it's a red flag. Mm. This was a great business. Yeah, this was a great. Business. I mean, it's not become it's not become a diabolical business. It's just uh, overstressed itself. It feels a bit like the Ted Baker scenario. You know, it's like this was a great UK focused business that wanted to be bigger. They're under pressure to be bigger. You got brokers who mm, want mm. you know they want the fees from debt issuance, equity issuance. You've got fund managers that want the earnings and the dividends to grow. This is why sometimes companies being listed on the stock exchange isn't in their best interest. Well, this was the subject of our cover feature last week, that actually yeah. lots of companies are choosing not to do it, especially because they can get the money elsewhere. They don't need it. Yeah. Well, you know, money, yeah, money, you know, venture capital, private equity, even borrowing. Mm. Should we talk about borrowing? We can talk. City World, we're a bit... Okay, so anyway, to conclude on City World... We'll see how we go. We'll see how we go here. You might get some respite. They seem to be quite bullish about the the sort of the box office that's being lined up for next year. You've got James Bond coming in, in April and a few other things. They seem to be talking a bit they seem to be a bit more upbeat. Mm. I went to the cinema once this year. Yeah. And I, it wasn't I, I, I haven't I haven't been at all. Yeah, I used to go a lot. There you go. I'm Kind of but then again, I'm out, just you know, I'm, you're a grumpy old sod. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's, that's right. Pipe so, and slippers. <laughs> let's talk about uh, borrowing because there's been some interesting developments on the debt front at Acado. I find and you the, really hate this. I don't hate it. Okay. Right, I, I, I just don't get it. Right. I don't get the valuation of this business, and. You hear you hear the bulls of this company telling about how great the technology is and how trans transformative it's going to be for the for the grocery industry. And I just say, well, hold on a minute. If it's that good, why can't Ocado make great returns out of it itself? And it seems to me that, you know, if you look across the whole world, selling groceries to people is a thin margin business. Two, three pence in the pound profit margins mm-hmm. or the dollar. And it seems to me that the bull case of Ocado is about selling some fancy technology, which I've no doubt is very good, into an industry where the economics are dire. And, you know, you have 
Kroger in America buying it. You've had a Japanese company this week buying. I think how are these companies going to make a return on their investment? But is this is this why Ocado's doing well? Because these companies are yes suffering these dire economics. They're looking for a savior and 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 they're seeing it in Ocado. That yeah, because but you know logistics logistics and software it's changing all the time. You know, Amazon's Amazon's got some really good stuff, and we've not really seen Amazon really go at this market yet. What food? Yeah, yeah, not, not yet. Yeah, I think it will. I think it will. It was bought Whole Foods, didn't it? Yeah, and it's and it's and going, there's rumors about Morrison. He's working with Morrison, and there's rumors that I, I think I, I I think that Morrison's might end up getting bought by Amazon. Yeah, but what what I'm saying is, is that you know you need to shift a lot of it at, at low margin to make the numbers stack up, and. To me, the the issue is this, is that the expectations that are baked into Cardo share price are very, very high. And let me just demonstrate why I think this. So, as we talked, the share price is about £12.30. And that gives the market capitalisation of the business uh, about £8.7 billion. Going back to our old friend, the annual reports again, if you... Take take the time to read Ocado's annual report. In there is a very useful bit of information, and it is about the expected levels of profit they hope to make from the contracts that they'd signed. Now, that will have gone up a little bit, but as of last year, the actual total profit stream was going to be about $1.3 billion. I remember now, you looking at this before. Yeah, so this is not $1.3 billion in today's money. This is 1.3 billion over many, many years. And you've got a grocery business in the UK, which, okay, they sold half of it to Marks and Spencers for 750 million, which was a very frothy price. So let's say that the UK business, we will, we'll take, we'll give them the benefit of doubt and say that the UK grocery business is worth one and a half billion. Probably isn't, but let's say it is. And you've got an 8.7 billion market cap. We'll ignore the debt for just to keep it simple for our, our listeners because that doesn't make a massive it's not a massive part of the enterprise value or the asset value so you've got 8.7 take away 1.5 you've got 7.2 of the value that's going towards the solutions business and so you get 1.3 from this future profit but that's not a present value so where is this huge chunk of value going to come from that makes and I, I think people have got carried away with this. I think you've had short sellers that have got burnt by it, who have bought back stock. There's not a natural seller in natural shorters now because they've been burnt. And you've got a lot of bulls talking about this being a technology stock. What type of industry this is neither here nor there. This is this is all about the hard numbers. Are you going to get shed loads of cash flow coming back to you in five or ten years' time? Or are you not? And that's the same for whether you're a grocer or a technology company. Just because you're a technology company doesn't mean that each pound of earnings should be worth more. It's all a function of growth. Mm. It's a weird looking chart. And it's a weird looking chart. I, I, it goes nowhere for years, and then just bosh. Yeah, and I, you know, look at the forecasts for you. Look at the forecasts for Ricardo. This company, no, no one's forecasting a profit over the next three years. In fact, the losses have been going up. As they invest more in this in these new contracts, and and now it's and now it's issued this the convertible bond. Well, for me, this for me one of the best lessons I ever got taught when I was a young analyst, and this is going back twenty years, 
for uh, rail track was a a glamour stock in the late nineties. Um, a lot of people got excited about the property value within rail track and the share price went up and up and up and it was wrong that people had misunderstood this but that's by the by and the shares went up to about the shares floated at sort of three pounds in three pounds 60 i think it was three pounds 80 in 1996 and they went up to 17 pounds 50 or something by 1998 1999 and rail track management decided to tap into the love affair with their equity to issue convertible bond. So they issued a bond borrowing money at a very cheap price and said, hey, look, you can. we're not going to pay you the sort of rate of interest we would do, but hey, we're giving you a chance to, to buy into this rising share price that's going to continue for years ahead. I think, you know, the conversion price was sort of, Eighteen pound fifty. I forget, forget. But it was high. It was a premium to the share price. And I just remember a fund manager uh, I was working with at the time just said, "That's telling me that the management think that their share price is wildly over overvalued." It was, and I think the same thing here is with Ocado because if we look at the, the terms of this convertible, so they were going to raise five hundred million, but because people are absolutely falling over themselves to 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 get into this, it's gone up to six hundred million. So they've issued a six hundred million convertible bond, which expires in six years' time in twenty twenty five, the end of twenty twenty five. And the interest rate or the coupon on it is naught point eight seven percent. Now that's attractive. <laughs> Almost as cheap as the government can borrow, right? And then, and of course. You sell it to selling it to myself, but hey, look, you can, you can. Uh, we're going to give you the option to to buy to buy to convert those bonds into shares, and the conversion price is seventeen pounds ninety three, or forty five percent more than the current share price. And I just said, I I think the current share price is very frothy, for what it's worth. That's, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. I think. So. In six years' time, I've got to believe that the share price is going to be even more frothy. When don't forget, this analysts at the moment have still got this company making a post-tax loss in 2022, three years before the bond is due to mature. So, I think this is a this is a great sort of. It's not quite a red flag, but it it's it's getting there. It's purple, and it's saying, look. Management here have tapped into the euphoria amongst a very frothy share price and have used it to, to, to actually acquire very, very cheap borrowings. And they deserve a lot of credit for that. This is not, this is not me criticising mm. Cardo management. I think they've done a brilliant job here, but I think the investment community needs to interpret it in a different way. I, do you know what? I, I, I actually don't understand really what it's doing. Uh, I know it's signing up these contracts. I don't really know how they work. I don't know how, how many, what proportion of the global grocery market is going to go for this sort of stuff, what they're doing themselves. I, I, I've not read this anywhere. This sounds like we should look into it. I just don't get it. I just don't see what it's doing that either companies, grocers can't do themselves. Or, or or why it's so transformational for these guys and that they'll carry on paying throughout the years. I just I, I think I don't think enough research has been done here by anyone. 
I think there's a lot of hope being built in here. Mm. Who's to say that in two, three years' time, another company might not come along with something that's even better? Yeah, it might be. There's, there is a company out there that might fit the bill. Is it Amazon? Might be. I, I, I forget. There was another company that was mentioned the other day, and I forget. I forget what it was. But you know, you are you have this risk of technological change, technical technological obsolescence, and. You know, it seems to me this is a classic example where no consideration of risk is being priced into the shares at all. So it's a it's a blue sky scenario factored into the share price, and then you add a premium of that, and that's going to the moon. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's a weird one. And but at the moment, whilst whilst the news flow is still positive, you won't see the share price come off. It's like it's like anything. It's like I think there was a discussion on Twitter yesterday, which was I thought was really interesting. It's about short selling and that, you know, good companies don't become victims of short sellers. Oh, that was old uh, John Steppeck, yeah, wasn't it? Was it was John Steppeck. Yeah, yeah. It was a very, very good question. He said, he said, look, can somebody give me an example of a sound business that has been destroyed by short sellers? And there are none. And Ocado... For me, the catalyst for anything to become bad is high valuation can can stay there for years. It's when the trading performance of the business turns. Trading what, performance, but it's losing money. Well, so, so what, I mean, what trading performance? It's well, losing money. Well, the losses get bigger. Then. The losses get bigger. It's but you see, money. which is what one of the things that I've said for a long time about what investors have the two great things that investors have got. They know the current profit, and they know the share price. Now, you're not always going to come up with the same answer, but the share price or the market capitalization is giving you a view of the expectations of future profits, and you can try and join the dots between where you are now and what the share price is assuming. I always think that investors shouldn't try and work out the value of a share they should work out the expectations of the future that are, that are baked into the share price and work out in their own mind whether they're too high or too low. And if they're too low, you buy. If you're too high, you don't you don't buy or you sell. Mm. And this is a classic example for me where the expectations baked into this company are absolutely massive. That's what I mean. That's what I mean, though, about the research. What is it assuming? Is it, how many grosses is it, is it assuming will come onto its platform or it will be providing services to? How, how much shopping will actually go online? Yeah, I mean... And, and, because actually people do still go to the shops, well, to, the, to the supermarket. Oh, they do. And the, see, the thing is, is that... Well, I think when I wrote about this, maybe one of my alpha reports sometime in the last year, my view is that Ocado was always going to have to come back for more money because the debt's going up and you know the profits aren't there to pay the interest on the debt so what it's done here is effectively avoided a rights issue it's been this is this is this is smart because you know there will be people who will say well you know 600 million of convertible bonds are what what will the dilution be if this if this bond converts into shares. But no one cares because I, I no one cares because the price will be I just don't through the moon. I, well, I, either that or it's not going to convert because the share price will never get to £17.93. I don't like it. But, what you, but you've got to ask yourself, what happens to Ocado in six years' time when that 600 million bond becomes due? Is it going to, you know, how's it, 
if if the profits haven't come through, it's still going to have to try and find six hundred million to pay it back. Yeah, that probably won't concern most of our listeners. Indeed, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. It's uh, it's more observational at the moment. I would say I wouldn't buy these shares. I wouldn't. I wouldn't buy these shares. Uh, I know people have lot made a lot of money out of them, and fair play. Well, of course they have, but they didn't make a lot of money for a long, long time. And and this has happened. This has only happened in the last sort of year and a half. So so it's a weird story. I wouldn't buy the shares. I don't. I don't see a business here that that delivers money. And and that's that's and then, it. Let's, really. let's face it. The people who are telling telling people to buy the shares, their own forecasts are not saying where the money is. No. Red flag. We've talked enough about red flags. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, thanks, Phil. Um, let me just talk you through what else we've got in the mag. Results sort of winding down a bit, thank goodness, as we go into our hideous, hideous Christmas production period. Mm. Always takes a shine off Christmas, uh, producing the Investors Chronicle. But there you go. There you go. Uh, Sex of Focus this week is great. One of the best headlines I've seen in the mag for a while the Great Snout Route. It's a look at uh, Asian swine flu. Well done, Nilushi, for, uh, for, for headline of the year. Lots in the personal finance and funds section that they will be talking about on their podcast this week, uh, not least the return of the Portfolio Clinic by popular demand, uh, and that will be a feature for a while uh, going forward. And Dave Baxter has had a look at investment trusts and where they're, where they're trading in terms of discounts, uh, which is really useful. Lovely context. Uh, lots of news, lots of comments, including your your uh, excellent column this week. Bearboy is looking at the election, but it's useful. It's interesting, but I'm so bored with politics. Bored with politics, Phil? I am, yeah. going to get out and soil your ballot paper. <laughs> uh, distinct... Soil or spoil? <laughs> it's a distinct possibility. Um, and uh, yeah, lots of lots of interesting news. As, uh, as I've mentioned, some of the... Um, Big uh, red flaggy accounting stories of the week. Saatchi and uh, Stobart, Ocado's in there as well. And we talk about supermarkets and actually plastic, which is obviously a big issue for them. Really quite interesting. Plastic is a crazy, crazy thing that's going on. And Saudi Aramco going public. Wow. I mean, there is a, there's one, just one giant red flag. But there you go. Anyway, thanks again, Phil. Uh, and thanks everyone for listening. The cover feature this week uh, is actually looking at Another scandal, Neil Woodford. A little bit of a retrospective, but, but what can we learn from this? What investors need to do to make sure that they don't fall foul of uh, possibly another Woodford? And actually, we had a fund suspension this week, um, uh, M&G Property Portfolio. So this is a real this is a real risk. I think people are rolling their eyes on this property thing. You know, have we, you know saying, what? why are these property funds still in open-ended funds where you can, re- you have, you can be asked to redeem your investors cash and you can't sell the, the asset the, the liquidity mismatch and i think there's i think there's more out of it than out there than than, than actually people yeah, it's, are, it's, are, are, you know, are thinking there is yeah there is so so yeah fallen angels the lessons private investors should learn from the woodford scandal and how how you can avoid uh, getting getting stuck in something like that again pick it up in all good news agents uh, 4 99 or get on the website and subscribe thank you all for listening we'll be back again next week so you've got an idea for a business the store of your dreams there's just one thing to figure out everything that's why shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online in person and everywhere else sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling it's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want so when you're ready to bring your idea to life power it up with shopify sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com listen 